Welcome to Episode 7 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this month's podcast, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, speaks with Dr. David Wong, Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the Departments of Emergency Medicine and Critical Care. Today, Drs. Farsi and Wong will discuss the neuromuscular blocking agents in mechanically ventilated patients. Good afternoon and welcome back to a very exciting new critical care podcast for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. David Farsi, and today it is with a great honor and great pleasure to be talking to a mentor of mine and a friend I've known for several years, Dr. David Wong from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Wong is a associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Critical Care Medicine and Emergency Medicine Department. He's also the director of multidisciplinary acute care research organization. David is a very well-published author, speaker, and if you're in emergency medicine and critical care, you must have heard his name. So David, it's with great honor that you're joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks again for inviting me, David. So today I wanted to talk about a topic that has been having some controversy. And the topic today we'll be discussing is the use of neuromuscular blocking agents in mechanical ventilated patients. Just to give a brief overview, uh, some of us will remember that once we were training, uh, neuromuscular blocking agent was the standard, mainstream, uh, almost every single patient in the emergency department or the ICU were paralyzed and placed on neuromuscular blocking agents. And then in the late 90s, early 2000, a couple studies said that neuromuscular blocking agent had significant problems. They would prolong ICU stay. Uh, They would cause this potential awareness where the patient is paralyzed but awake and the induced diaphragmatic dysfunction. And recently, as we will be discussing, there's newer evidence that's pointing to maybe a different approach. So David, do you want to give us a little background on maybe our history review of some of the neuromuscular blockade? So I think that background summarizes things pretty well. So first of all, just to clarify, we're talking about neuromuscular blockade in uh, established patients with respiratory failure and not for intubation. So as David Farsi was was saying, uh, yes, in the last 10, 20 years, there's been great concern that neuromuscular blockade, possibly enhanced with uh, corticosteroids, may induce long-term uh, weakness. This is concomitant with the a greater awareness of the long-term consequences of surviving critical illness. 
since previously ICU research was, was really focused just on saving lives. And then o- over the last 10, 20 years, there's been more, more emphasis on, well, that's nice they're alive, but how are they doing? Do, do they have post-traumatic stress disorder and or do they have terrible critical illness polyneuropathy and then a variety of other terms used to describe the, the profound muscle weakness often seen in, in ICU survivors. Great. And exactly, I just want to again re-emphasize, I think it's really important that we're talking about patients mechanically ventilated for acute respiratory failure, ARDS, and like Dr. Wong said, not for rapid sequence intubation, nothing to do uh, with rapid sequence intubation. Um, So David, tell us a little bit about this new paper, which is actually now four years old, that came out, the neuromuscular blocker in early acute respiratory distress syndrome that was published in September 16, 2010 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, so this was uh, a great paper and uh, and very eye-opening in the sense of up until this point, a lot of the work with ARDS was sort of along the lines of less is more, right? Like less tidal volume, less sedation, just be as gentle as as possible. And here comes along this uh, this paper where they where they paralyzed them pretty much right off the bat. So it was a French study uh, done in about 20 ICUs in France. They randomized 340 patients in the ICU fairly early on with severe ARDS. I believe within the previous 48 hours. And it's it's important to note that this was a pretty sick patient population. So they had a requirement of a PF ratio less than 150. But actually they enrolled patients even sicker than that. The, the mean PF ratio was about 100. So to put it into regular terms, these patients on enrollment had an FIO2 of 80%, a PEEP of 9, and, and with those fairly high settings, uh, only had partial pressure of oxygen of 80. That's pretty severe ARDS, whether you use the new Berlin definition or whatever definition you like. So I just want to emphasize that this was a sick population. And then they randomized them either to usual care or to paralysis for, for 48 hours with a cystatricurian drip. And they had a very impressive drop in mortality. The crude 90-day mortality was 32% in the paralysis group and 41% in the usual care arm. And this impressive result was what caught everybody's eye. But there are, of course, some important caveats about the study. Okay, before we go into the caveat of the study, I just want to recap two things. Number one, for our residents, this is a pretty sick patient population. Dr. Wong brought up the Berlin definition, which was published in 2012, which really kind of grade the severity of ARDS into mild with a PO2-FIO2 ratio of less than 200? It's 300, 200, 100. Okay, so, so can you clarify that for us? So... PF ratio between 200 and 300 is 
there is mild between 100 and 200 is uh, is moderate and then less than 100 is severe okay so based on the berlin the population in the french paper is already a pretty severe population right yeah yeah their enrollment criteria was less than 150 but the actual table one baseline characteristics it was basically like 108 so the average PF ratio was was right at the severe mark. So would you like me to discuss some of the some of the caveats? Yes, please. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So so right now paralysis in the ICU is uh, as a routine measure at least is really I think there's really wide variation. Some attendees use it a lot. Some attendees don't. I think the caveats to the study are probably the reason why there there's such variability in adoption. So first of all, the trial was underpowered. The, the mortality benefit was noted only after you did statistical adjustments. The uh, crude 90-day mortality actually did not meet statistical significance using the standard p-value of, of 0.05. The authors themselves concluded, uh, and I'll quote, given the observed mortality in our placebo group, the current study, was underpowered. That's probably the biggest caveat. And the second caveat is that the mechanism is a bit unclear. So a lot of us think, believe that it's probably improvement in patient ventilator synchronization with then subsequent reduction in ventilator-induced lung injury and inflammation, but they didn't measure any of that. Also interestingly, cystatricurium itself can exert a direct anti-inflammatory effect, and, and they also did not look at uh, bar markers in this population. And then there are other concerns such as they just use a fixed dose, and as we all know, that's not really how paralytic drips are, are used uh, clinically. We, we generally titrate them either to what's called train of or and or to clinical judgment. So those are probably the, the biggest three criticisms I have heard, that one, it was underpowered, two, the mechanism was unclear, and three, use a fixed dose. I mean, uh, never really confirmed paralytic efficacy, and also there was some concern that, that maybe they used too much in some patients. Oh, sorry, and a fourth one is that um, they used a relatively crude measure to, to measure muscle strength and ICU, ICU weakness. So using this crude measure, they didn't show any difference in in ICU acquired weakness. And these are the, some of the criticisms that, that I've heard and also read in print. Okay, I think you're bringing some great point and couple point that I want to re-emphasize for our listener, especially our residents. Our patients are not static. They don't just stay there and, you know, they're dynamic, they move, they don't move. And it's very important I teach in my ICU, if we paralyze somebody, it's extremely important to use uh, what Dr. Wong referred to as the train of four, which is a, a marker you place on a, at a nerve junction, generally at the uh, forehead, and you press and it's a nerve impulse that triggers a muscle twitch. Uh, and we generally utilize uh, neuromuscular blockade to a certain degree of zero over four twitch, one twitch over four twitch, two twitch over four twitch, and four out of four means patient is not paralyzed. 
And I think, like Dr. Wan pointed out, it's extremely important that you know we titrate and we see. At one point, the patient may be one out of four, and 20 minutes later, he's been receiving dressing changes, uh, manipulation, and now he's four out of four, and you would have to increase your drip. Um, is that a fair statement and clarification? Uh, yes, and, and certainly any ICU nurse will tell you that train of four is far from perfect. I think, David, uh, you've seen patients who supposedly are zero out of four on the train of four, and, but, but, but you can see that they're like still moving a little bit, and that because the, the machine isn't working well or because they're too sweaty or, or too obese or whatever. But nonetheless, the, the fact that, that this study did not titrate cisatricurian drip at all struck a lot of people as, as a bit strange. Uh, true. Um, one question I have on this study, do we know if any of those patients were prone, um, there was no proning, there were standard uh, mode of ventilation? Yeah, that's a good question. So about 16% or so of the patients at enrollment either were prone or were receiving some type of inhaled vasodilator such as nitric oxide. I don't, I don't think the paper uh, separated out exactly how much was in, was in either category, but a, a small proportion were prone. Okay, great. So what would you conclude out of this paper? What is the first year attending in the community hospital is to take out of this paper? It was a fourth year, third year residence is to take out of this paper? So first of all, I should confess to my personal bias, which is uh, despite the academic caveats that I've brought up, I've personally always loved paralytics, uh, but that's just my doing a full disclosure so you know where my bias is coming from, David. Well, and absolutely, um, absolutely, you know, we all have biases. You know, we all practice medicine based on our personal experience and based on what our patient has taught us. So, and I think that's very important to, to mention our biases. So first off, okay, so for residents, when I was a resident, it used to drive me nuts. I didn't understand why attending A would, would tell me to do this while attending B would tell me to do that. Now that I'm older, I realize it's because there's very few things as clear as aspirin for myocardial infarction, where 100 out of 100 doctors will agree on that. So variation in care happens when the evidence is not clear. And it's as simple as that. Um, I, I wish somebody had, had told me that when I was a resident because it used to just drive me nuts, David. <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, I don't think uh, you're the only one, uh, David. I think every resident today will tell you, and being the chairman in my residency, all my residents complain about the variation of attending A and, and attending B. And that's exactly what I tell them. It's it doesn't mean that attending A is 100% correct, but that's what he knows and that's what he's doing at this, at this moment in time. Attending B, it's a variation of a style. That doesn't mean he's incorrect, but he's been doing it this way. And as long as he doesn't harm the patient, it's just a, a style difference. Right, right. So, so just like when we talked about, you know, should you use procalcitonin or not, I would say that where the evidence is not clear, then if you're going to adopt the novel approach, 
before a definitive trial is out, and I'll discuss that in a few minutes, because we do have plans to do a definitive trial. You should just be intellectually honest with yourself, and perhaps even your patients, that you're being an early adopter. It's sort of like, David, I remember like uh, last year I, I had a patient with uh, a TPN overdose. The patient got a liter of TPN in five minutes, and I had no idea what to do. So, um, but fortunately, I remember hearing about this happening in pediatric ICUs back in the 90s. So I called up an old, an older pediatric intensivist, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 we used to see that all the time. Go ahead and use plasmapheresis, and, and then listed a whole bunch of theoretical reasons. So I, I was like, sure, I'm going to do, you know, when, when there's no data, you do what the old person says, right? Correct. So, but I, I, I told the family, hey, I have no idea this is going to work. I'm going with the opinion of a senior guy. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm letting you know what I'm going to do. So anyway, um, so if you're going to if you're going to jump on this 2010 paper uh, and not wait for definitive evidence, I think that's fine. You just have to recognize you are being an early adopter. So that's number one. Number two, um, only really applicable in, in emergency medicine, I think, if you have uh, a really long waiting time for an ICU bed which, as we know, does happen quite a bit in, in, in some places. So you did your RSI, and now the sucks or rocuronium is wearing off, and the patient's starting to buck and desat, et cetera. Now what do you do? Yes, you can titrate sedation, but that's difficult, and you have a 1,000 other patients. So if you want to be an early adopter, I think a reasonable approach would be, one, of course, ethically, make sure the patient is pretty deeply sedated, and then from a practical point of view, rather than ask your ED nurse to set up a drip with a drug that he or she's probably not that comfortable or familiar with, just give them like one dose of vecuronium, you know, 10 milligrams times one or something. And that'll give everybody peace for about, what, something like four or five hours, I think, David. Correct. Uh, and then obviously, of course, then for safety reasons, you, you might want to put a sign up, this patient is paralyzed, and make sure, of course, the vent alarms work, et cetera, et cetera. So what I said is not scientific, any of this stuff, but uh, I think it's a reasonable approach if you want it to be an early adopter. And it's just something I sort of made up. Uh, what do you think, David? I, I agree 100% with you. Uh, I'm just going to reemphasize a couple points that you brought up that are, I think, extremely important and actually one of my pet peeve in my department. Number one is deep sedation. Just remember, we're very, very good at rapid sequence intubation. I think we're not so good in the post-intubation phase because of our personal biases or personal fear. Patient blood pressure is labile, so we're withholding the sedation medication, patient now is waking up, desetting, and you know we go ahead and push the vecuronium. Um, my pet peeve is if you're using paralytic, is you must sedate the patient. Um, if the patient blood pressure is labile, there's something else going on, give the volume, and if you have to, go to vasopressors. If the patient is on paralytic, it is crucial, crucial that the nurse the respiratory therapist, the residents, the attending are aware that the patient is paralyzed, that we're so used to being in an environment with so much noise that we 
don't pay attention to alarms. Those are the patients when the alarm goes off, we must respond. Uh, and David, you brought an excellent point. You have to pay attention to the alarm. Um, I'm not sure as an ICU attending if I'm going to jump on the bandwagon yet, uh, David. I think for me, my personal belief, um, as a caveat in parentheses, you mentioned about the case of um, the patient with TPN overdose. My During the H1N1 flu case, we had a 35-year-old female with severe, severe ARDS um, with a PO2-FL2 ratio of 50 on 16 of PEEP um, that after pronation, I decided, you know, we're going to put on ECMO. I, it was the first case in our hospital. Everybody looked at me like with foreheads uh, and said, you're crazy. Uh, long story short, the patient survived. That's again, not standard of care. Um, I only use in my practice tomorrow, I will only use paralytic only for the patient that I feel that I can't ventilate as a last ditch effort. Um, that's what I'm taking. I'm taking this paper at. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you're going to be an early adopter, you should also make sure that that your patient that you're going to do this on matches pretty well with either the inclusion and exclusion criteria used in the trial and or the table one baseline characteristics, which again, were quite severe, uh, a PF ratio of about 100. Yeah, which is by definition severe, severe ARDS. And of course, before you do paralytics, you, you better be sure that all the basics are done. Basic as in? The good basic care for ARDS, such as low tidal volume, do you have the right amount of PEEP, and then some of the kind of annoying stuff, like is, is the endotracheal tube in the right place? You know, just the other good bread and butter care before you get fancy. I'm going to stop you for two seconds. And you mentioned something about aspirin, uh, that if you ask aspirin ten, uh, to 10 physician, all physician will tell you that aspirin is great, 10 out of 10. Uh, physician have a quite a long period of what's, what we call penetration of studies. And it took several, 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 several years for people to adopt aspirin. Um, so now that I mentioned this, I just want you to reiterate the ARDS net trial, just, just, just the key factors, because I think it's still, for you and I, we think it's common arsenal and common practice, but in our community hospital um, and sometimes even in our EDs, you know, asking a plateau pressure, it turns heads, you know, people looking at you and saying, what the hell are you doing? Sure. So, you know, actually the simplest approach, which we find, which my hospital finally did after years of debate and talking about checklists and more education, et cetera, et cetera, is basically making it a rule and I think uh, I think we're actually trying to work with the machines themselves so it's impossible to set a tidal volume more than 400 um, but but for now at least the simple thing nobody should be almost no almost nobody there's always exceptions should be at a tidal volume more than 400 because if you look at the ArgeNet ideal body weight calculator and, and chart for your average you know five eight five nine five ten man and average five five four five five woman 60 cc's per kilogram comes out to something like, I think, 
325 for a woman and 380 for a man. So in general, anytime you see a tata volume greater than 400, you should pause for a second because unless you have an, an NBA basketball player, that that's probably too high. Um, and then there was a there was a good meta-analysis in JAMA a few years ago, which surprised all of us, including my chair, who then accepted the paper to JAMA, that actually there's a good amount of anesthesiology literature where low tidal volume versus traditional tidal volume of, say, 8 to 12 cc's per kilogram of predicted body weight for just the operation, so what, you know, 6 to 18 hours or something like that, made a difference in outcomes. So here in the, in, the, in the anesthesiology patients, we're talking about prevention of, of harm. ArtNet was for treatment of ARDS. But, but the simple bottom line is whether you're trying to prevent ARDS or treat ARDS, pretty much nobody should be above 400. Excellent. I'm just going to do a two-second recap. What the 400, the ARDS net paper talked about, a six milliliter per kg of the predicted body weight. If Jabba the Hutt weighs 400 pounds, comes in, you're not going to use that 400 pounds. You're going to use his predicted weight based on his height and what he should be. Um, and like Dr. Wong said, 400 is probably the, per, the highest total volume you should be using. And then there's a caveat looking at uh, plateau pressures, maintaining plateau pressure less than less than 30 centimeter of water and and you would sacrifice your tidal volume uh, and increasing your respiratory rate to compensate to maintain your minute ventilation just for resident remember minute ventilation is your tidal volume time your respiratory rate so if you drop the tidal volume to compensate for that minute ventilation you'll have to increase your respiratory rate that would cause a respiratory acidosis but we tolerate acidosis pretty well and I think David correct me if I'm wrong I think 7.21 or 7.20 is what people will generally accept as permissive hypercapnia right yes yeah, 7.20 is what was used in the original ARMA ARSNET trial at which point they said okay go ahead and give some some bicarb from my understanding that was a pragmatic element of the protocol just to assuage physician concerns about acidosis and not necessarily scientific. In other words, I think many people feel that patients can tolerate the pH less than, of a, say, 7.1 if it's pure respiratory acidosis, just fine. But but that but this is a fine detail. Right. Okay, so just to recap, we've talked about neuromuscular blockade in severe um, ARDS patient. Um, first, you know, do the basic you know basic uh, check your et2 placement check the x-ray post intubation uh, check an abg titrate your fio2 and increase your peep to maintain the po2 uh, fio2 ratio above 100 um, use your ards net trial and then if you're going to use neuromuscular blockade in this patient population you should adhere to the table one of the New England Journal paper of 2010 and make sure that your patient fits the inclusion criteria. Is that a good summary of what we talked about? Uh, yeah. 
anything, any departing words uh, you would like to share with us? Yes, definitely. So, so for those of you who, who are not early adopters and want to see more data, uh, good news is that so Arginet 2.0 has now been renamed uh, PETL, uh, Prevention and, and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury, still funded by NIH, specifically the National um, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. What's unique about PETL is that the PE and T is that they're, they're focused on prevention and early treatment, not just uh, treatment per se. And, and as a result, PETL has now very much embraced emergency medicine. So the, the old Arsenet network was pretty much 99% home CCM. The, the new just established pedal network. We just had the first meeting in, in NIH this summer. Is almost 50/50 home CCM and emergency medicine, which I think is a huge step forward for emergency medicine as a specialty, and then for uh, how should we say acute care in general. Because as Peter Stafford said said a long time ago, critical care or acute care or emergency care is defined by the patient and not by the drywall that surrounds the patient. So I'm happy to report that PETO is planning to conduct a large confirmatory trial of neuromuscular blockers for early ARDS. And Pittsburgh and Denver will be leading this trial. So this is, this is very new, and I am deep into protocol writing uh, right now, actually. Well, David, that would be amazing uh, information. I just want to give the, a little um, fun fact. Uh, so all my residents, when I'm picking on, on you, you can understand. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Wong um, was my, a mentor of mine. And I wrote with Dr. Wong the early sepsis uh, and, and severe sepsis goal-directed card. And I think Dr. Wong guidance took several, several, several time to get it right. And it's perfection and attention to detail is what today made me today. So when my residents say, you know, why are you so hard on us? It's because of Dr. Wong, great help and mentoring me. And again, I'm so grateful for your friendship uh, in the last almost 15 years now. And thank you so much for joining us today, David. Sure, it was my pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of relevance for emergency physicians.